All right, so we're on Lord's Day 4, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 4. It might get a little confusing as we go along, since today is actually the 40th Lord's Day of the year, and we confess the Lord's Days in their calendar sequence in the evening services, but we start the school year in September, and so we're going to go through the catechism uh, by the school year. Yeah. We are on, are we on three? Are we on three? We're on three. Thank you. See, I don't even know. We're on three. Well, maybe we'll get to four. Right. <laughs> you were asleep in the ship somewhere. And so, no, that's, uh, you're right. We're on three. Thank you for pointing that out to me. All right, Lord's Day three. Let's pray and then, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word and your table and the fellowship of your people. We pray, Father, that you would instruct our minds now and that you would be with little ones in their classes, that the truth that they are receiving in the home and learning the faith would be reinforced now as they uh, uh, commit to memory uh, your word and the catechism and, and as they learn the, the story of redemption and rescue that you have revealed in your word. Bless our time together, Father, in our discussion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3. And so... Uh, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, the catechism, it follows that pattern of guilt, grace, gratitude. Uh, Lord's Day 1, questions 1 and 2, is the introduction to the whole catechism. And then uh, Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4, so that's questions 3 through 11, cover uh, our, our guilt and our sin and misery. So... What three things do we need to know to live and die in the joy of the, of the gospel? First, the greatness of my sin and misery. Second, how I'm redeemed from all my sin and misery. And third, how I'm to be thankful to God for such redemption. Those aren't rhetorical questions, so I was asking if you, if you knew them. Um, and so, uh, question, Lord's Day 2 starts taking us through how we know our sin and misery, the law of God. And so we went into that last week about what the law of God requires of us and how it's stamped upon uh, human nature going back to creation before the fall and that uh, all human beings have been created to love God and love neighbor. It's the fall that has frustrated that. It's sin that causes us to love ourselves over neighbor and love idols rather than God. Uh, it ended on question five, can you live up to this perfectly? No. I still have a natural tendency to hate God in my neighbor. And so Lord's Day 3 begins with question six. And why don't we recite that together if you have the catechism open. Did God create people so wicked and perverse? No. God created them. Good. Okay, let's talk about that a bit. So this is why people were made. The, the people were not created sinful. Uh, the world is not messed up today with all its problems uh, because God made it that way. And by the way, the world has always been messed up with, world, with, with problems. Um, as a student of history, um, there was, there's never a time when we can say the world was great. The only time the world was great was before the fall. 
it's always been messed up. And we have a tendency in every generation, in every place, to think, oh man, things are getting so bad. And it may be in certain ways, uh, a culture may be getting worse, but it's also true that in other ways, it, there may actually be certain improvements. Um, and it's like that all throughout history. And, and you, you can go to any period of history and you can find any culture, you can find problems, wars, rumors of wars, famines, economic collapse, crises, all kinds of things. Hatred amongst people, um, crime, uh, riots, you know, I mean, you name it. Uh, it's because we're sinful people. And so it's very important for us not to have a superficial view of history as if there was once upon a time a golden age that existed. That only happened before Adam sinned. Uh, ever since, it's been dark, and uh, as the Bible itself shows us. But God didn't create people that way. He made them in his own image, and that is in true righteousness and holiness. And uh, Scripture explains that that's what it means to be made in God's image. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 4, for example, talks about how we're being renewed in that image. Being made in the image of God does not mean that God has a body. That's a common misconception that um, people have. They, they, we, we tend to think, oh, if we're made in the image of God, then God is just a bigger version of us. Um, and what, the error there is that we're projecting ourselves onto God. Uh, being made in the image of God doesn't mean that God has arms and legs and God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Uh, God is only like us in Jesus Christ, which happened 2,000 years ago, and now he still has a body and always will have a body. But that's the Son, uh, not the Father or the Holy Spirit. Uh, being made in the image of God, rather, be, means that we are made with his uh, attributes that he communicates to us. Okay, so there are certain attributes, uh, which we call communicable attributes, and uh, rather than the incommunicable attributes, we think of communicable diseases, right? Versus incommunicable. What are some attributes of God that he shares with us? Holiness. Okay. So he created us to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? Set apart from what? From evil. That's very important to understand. You can be set apart from something good, and that doesn't mean holy. Set apart from evil. What, uh, what are other attributes of God that he shares with uh, humans? What was that? Um, faithfulness, yeah, not faith, but maybe faithfulness, yeah. Um, goodness is another way of putting it. There's another one. Sorry, I can't hear. Mercy, um, yeah, God is merciful. Another one? Well, yeah, knowledge, however, is not something that he, he communicates to us in the same sense because his knowledge is all knowledge. So he had, this would be actually an incommunicable attribute where he has what's called omniscience, omniscience. So it's true that he reveals himself to us so that we can know him. However, his knowledge is not like our knowledge. That's something that I mean, we could talk a long, a long time about. Two plus two in our minds 
is not exactly the same as it is for God. And so we might say, what? And that freaks us out. But we have to understand that he knows two plus two as the creator. We know two plus two as a creature. He has omniscience. He has all knowledge. He is not uh, finite. He is infinite. Uh, so, so there are other incommunicable attributes. Think of omnis, which means all. Anybody think of any others? Omnipotence, which means what? All-powerful. Any other omnis? Omnipresence, which means what? He's everywhere. God is everywhere. He fills all things. These attributes he does not share with his creatures. These are incommunicable. Another one is his eternality. Now, we might think, well, wait a minute. Aren't we going to have eternal life? Well, that's true. However, we had a beginning. God has no beginning. So we, we are granted eternal life in the sense of never-ending life going forward, but we are not eternal beings in the same sense as God, who, who God, God has no beginning, which, again, we can't get our finite minds around that. We, can, we can't fully comprehend that. But communicable attributes are things that we are, and we could go on, love, yeah, righteousness. Yeah, forgiveness would be merciful. Uh, Obedience would be goodness. Yeah, you could go on and on. Um, Point is, is that these things we are to reflect at our own creaturely level. So to be made in the image of God is to be a reflector. You know, reflectors like on bicycles, you know, um, it's so that if a car is coming, it can, the light bounces off the reflector and you, you can see the, the bike um, so you don't hit them. It's reflecting light. To be made in the image of God is to reflect these things at our own creaturely level. And we were made this way. Adam was made holy, good, loving, righteous. He was made not wicked. Not bad. And notice how, and it's, you know, uh, referring here, of course, question six, to uh, the creation story, uh, you know, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. You can see that in footnote two, how that's when God says, let us create man in our image, and male and female, he created them. God's the one that made those categories of male and female, which all people know. I mean, you can suppress the truth and try to say, oh, there's no categories, and you just, it's whatever you want to identify as. But the fact is that, you know, people know by nature that God has created these things, and there are male and there are female. There are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, because God made it that way in the beginning. So God created them good and in his own image. That is in true righteousness and holiness. Now notice how it goes on. So that they might truly know God their creator, love him with all their heart, okay, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Now, what does that mean, the last part there? That we would truly, that we'd be able to live with him in eternal happiness to his praise and glory. Um, Let's talk about that just for a sec. So God creates Adam in his image, and Eve, the wife, actually she's not Eve until after um, they're kicked out of the garden. She's known as the woman. Um, 
Adam uh, and the woman who comes out of Adam, they're made in the image of God. And the purpose of uh, humans uh, being created in true righteousness and true holiness with these communicable attributes of God is so that we will know God, we'll love him. So we're made for him. We're not made for ourselves. Our culture, you know, that's the common idea today is that we are autonomous and your life belongs to yourself. You choose whatever you want for yourself. You identify as whatever you want. You pick your way. You don't want to go to Nineveh? Don't go to Nineveh, you know? You're your own God. You go to Tarshish. You go do whatever you want to do because you're, you, you get to choose for yourself. Believe in yourself. Trust yourself. It's your life. You know, that's the whole message that's contrary to Christianity. And uh, the Bible tells us that, no, we were actually made for God. We were made by God, for God, to enjoy God and to glorify God. But it says there, eternal happiness. Now, what does that mean? So in the beginning, you have Adam, his wife, enjoying creation, and all things are holy. There's no sin. All things are good. All things are without decay or frustration. There is nothing fallen about the world. But Adam will go on to live in eternal happiness, the joy of the Lord, if he remains obedient. It's a a big if. He has to remain obedient. So he has a choice to to obey God or to disobey God. God gives Adam a true and pristine free will that is not tainted or affected by any evil or sinful desires. He has no desires within that are contrary to God because God has not made him evil. He's created in true righteousness and true holiness, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. God's made him in his image, Genesis 1. But there's a test here. If he remains obedient, then at some point he will be given the right to eat from the tree of life. And this simply is a symbol for glory. That's the eternal happiness that Catechism Question 6 is talking about. If he passes his probationary period of being obedient to God, naming all the animals, having dominion over the earth, populating the earth, uh, keeping out evil. So when when the serpent came and tempted Eve, what should he have done to that serpent? Yeah, cast it out. Chopped up, crushed its head, cast it out. And he didn't. Uh, If he remains obedient, at some point he enters in for himself and all those whom he represents, which is the entire human race, as Paul tells us in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, he'll, the goal is glory. 
And creation will be elevated to a glorified state. And that's the goal, is for creation and for man to be glorified. I emphasize that. I don't like to just say glorified. Maybe it annoys you when I say glorified, but it's to help us get our minds around that word glory that appears over and over again in the Bible. That's the goal, is the, uh, the glory that was held out for us. So how many, how many of you know Romans 3.23? What does the Romans 3.23 say? Because that's a common verse that's used in evangelism. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the way that that verse often gets used is like this. All, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard. That's the way, when people quote Romans 3.23, the way they're usually using it. But that's not what that verse says. That, that's actually a common case of the right doctrine from the wrong text. And Christians are notorious for doing this. There's actually, it's actually an exegetical fallacy. Something, one of the first things you learn in seminary is you've been doing this thing called illegitimate totality transfer and all these other exegetical fallacies. Right doctrine from the wrong text. So um, I sympathize when people say, well, the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because what they're saying is we're all sinners, and none of us have met God's standard, and that's correct. However, when Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short, he doesn't say of God's righteous standard, he says of the glory of God. In other words, you fell short in Adam of obtaining the tree of life. And that's why then when he goes on in Romans 8, chapter verse 18, to say, for I am persuaded that the... Uh, sufferings which we now experience, they are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. He's talking about the same thing in Romans, in Romans chapter 8 and, and, in, and in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Point is this, Adam had a goal. He did not obtain the goal because he was disobedient. He was created in true righteousness and true holiness to lead us as our representative, or we say sometimes federal head, our representative, making a decision for us that affects us, just as our federal representatives do in government, or you know, a CEO does of a company for which we work, whatever. Adam makes, makes uh, his performance affects us. And we don't obtain the glory of God that was held out as a goal for Adam. Someone else has to come and bring us to that, to that state. And that's Jesus Christ. Adam fails. He's barred from the tree of life. Angels are placed around the tree of life to guard the way back. And we have the fall. He gets cast out of the garden. But right there is when God promises Adam that someone will come to crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15, that's the first time the gospel's mentioned. And God separates the seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent. And, and he says, you know, there will be life again, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's when he names her Eve, because the name Eve, it says in Romans 3, it, it, she's the mother of all the living. So it's a response of Adam's faith in God's promise 
that comes after the fall. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who comes and he represents all those whom the Father gives him, is obedient and does what Adam fails to do, also does what Israel fails to do, obey the law. And as a result, what happens? He is resurrected into glory. His resurrection is not just a mere resuscitation, hey, I'm back from the dead, but it's in an entrance into glorified life. That new state that Adam would have entered into and all the human race would have entered into and creation itself would have entered into had Adam remained obedient. This is why Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole creation is subjected to futility, that it's in bondage and decay, and it's longing for that glory that will be revealed, the glorified life. So this is, in other words, in the garden, a lot of people have a misconception that in the garden, you know, Adam would have, if, if Adam hadn't disobeyed, we would just go on living in the garden forever. And that's not true. Uh, according to the rest of the Bible, Romans 8 and, and 1 Corinthians 15, what would have happened is his probationary period at some point would have ended be, having fulfilled the demands that God gave him, having been obedient in all things, and he would have entered in to glory, he and the whole human race and the, all of the, the universe that God had created, to a, 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 an elevated state of creation. That's precisely what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says how Adam, the first Adam was, a, was created a living being, the second Adam, Christ, has become a life-giving spirit. or that he's, the, he's the spiritized man. He's entered into a new state, the state of glory. So we have creation plus to look forward to that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ returns. Yeah, all, all of this, I'm going to say, all of this is essentially what is encapsulated in that little word right there, or the little phrase, and live with him in eternal happiness. You know, so I'm just explaining to you what that eternal happiness means. It's glory. A place where we will be free from death, from sin, from Satan, from sadness, from even the possibility of it ever happening again. Uh, we, we will have, there will no, never be again any temptation. That's right. That's correct. That's right. Yeah, because when we hear this, it, it raises the question, well, why did God allow the fall? And, and it's true what you're saying. Had he not allowed the fall, we would never know God to be merciful. Because mercy is ju- deserved judgment that is relinquished, that is, that is you know, bypassed. And grace is favor given to the undeserving. And we wouldn't know God as those things. We wouldn't know God as redeemer. We would not know God as becoming man. There'd be no need for God to become a man. Um, and so you can see how God allowed for the fall. And Paul even talks about this when he says, Adam was a type of him who was to come. So see, when Satan is tempting Adam... And notice how crafty Satan is. He doesn't just go straight up to Adam and say, hey, I can make you king here. I can make you. He, he knows that Adam's going to try to be faithful, so he goes to the woman. He goes 
a separate way. And he knows also that God is going to keep his promise that if you eat of that tree, the one thing I told you not to do, or if you disobey me in any way, essentially, that you'll get death. And uh, he knows God will do that, and so he tries to derail God's plan of bringing Adam to this. Because what Satan hates more than anything else is uh, God receiving glory, which you'll really receive when people enter into glorified life. And man, he's, his glory is only going to be magnified. And Satan can't have that. He can't tolerate that. So he tries to derail the plan by tempting uh, Eve, who will then in turn uh, make Adam fall uh, if he gives in. And, but Satan doesn't know that all along God had planned to send his son before the foundation of the world to do what Adam would not do. And through that, we would know God as a redeemer, which makes our love for him even more. Any other questions on this? Sure. But not Genesis 3.14 or 3.16, only Genesis 3.15. Right. I saw that as God creating like two different types of people in the world. Is that correct? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's not that he's creating two different types of people, but he is uh, putting enmity between two types of people in the sense that he is calling out a certain people for himself, separating them from the mass of damnation. Because you see, when Adam falls the whole human race goes with him. And that's why people quote, misquote Romans 3.23. Because all, in Adam, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's standard, but we've also fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of the goal. Uh, now, God could have left us there, but what does he do? He separates people. And that's the beginning of the church. Church, uh, in, the, in Greek, is just ecclesia, which means called out. And uh, in Hebrew, same thing, kahal, it means called out or assembled. So the seed there, the people of God, are called out and separated from the rest of humanity. However, there's a play there in Genesis 3.15 on the word seed, on, on the word offspring, in that it's used both in the plural sense and in the singular sense. So in the plural sense, the offspring is the people of God. And that's the saga of redemptive history, right? But in the singular sense, the offspring refers to Christ. And that that same phrase, offspring, is repeated all throughout the Old Testament, especially when you get to um, the whole covenant with Abraham and your seed, your offspring, you know, will have a land. And then, you know, that's why you have Paul in Galatians saying the offspring is actually Christ and so Well, that's the same person. Yeah. 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 Same. Yeah. Same person. And so, and from her, that's why she thinks when she has her first son, Cain, oh, this is him. You know, behold the man. And uh, she thinks that this is going to be the savior. And in fact, he's not. You know, it's going to be a lot longer than that. And that's why we need this. Again, it's a, you know, getting back to John's point, 
the Old Testament? Because I, I, some people have asked, well, how come you know Christ didn't come just like right, right after like Cain and Abel, you know, or why all of this, you know? And it's a good question, but the, there's a good answer, and it's that through all of this, we see several things. We see the, the mercy of God, the grace of God. We see the promises of God. Because over and over again, he's promising that Christ, the second Adam, is going to come to make us live in eternal happiness and blessedness. And we see also that we can't keep the law. It's the, whole, the whole point of Israel, the whole point of the Mosaic Covenant, is to show us that, man, we, can't, we need a Savior. We need someone to save us. So, so all of that, out of question six, no, God created them good and in his own image. That isn't true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with him in eternal happiness. And there's more we can say about this, guys. Hold on a sec. There's more that we can say about this. You know, um, I was telling my sons the other day, we were at, eating pizza at Long Island Mike's in Tirasana because it was book night for the ladies, and that means we've got to vacate the house. So we're there. The boys and I, with our dog, like exiles, and uh, eating pizza, and uh, some guy walks in, and my 10-year-old says, why does he have an Illuminati symbol on the back? And so we started chatting a little bit about that, and I said, you know, boys, what you need to realize is that the true Illuminati in the world, the true Illuminati, are Christians, in the sense that we know from God's revelation what life is all about, the purpose of living, the purpose of, your, the purpose of your hopes and dreams and aspirations and the why they never seem to fully satisfy is because they fall short of this. And the Bible tells us that. Even in question six, I mean, this is really it. You want illumination and people looking for illumination, here it is. This is, this is why we find ourselves so frustrated when we try to find our validation in our idols, or when we go looking for affection, or for acceptance, or for freedom in something other than God. I mean, yes, we have certain gifts that he gives us, you know, I get affection from my wife and from my kids, and I'm thankful for that, uh, I, you know, but if I go looking for my sense of self-worth in them, or in that, it will ultimately leave me frustrated. Why? Because I was created to truly know God, my creator, love him with all my heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. And I can take a good thing, even like my kids or my spouse or my job or even the ministry, and turn it into an idol and put it in place of God. And it will always fail me. It'll never deliver on the promises that I think it will. Uh, Because I was made for this, to know him, love him, and live with him in eternal happiness. And so the gifts that he gives us along the way are good things. Family, work, you know, food and wine, those kinds of things are good things, not to be abused, but to be enjoyed to God's glory. But I always have to remember that they're not to be worshipped. The gift is not to be worshipped, the giver is. And my acceptance and validation and freedom and happiness is ultimately found in him because that's why I was made. That's why I was created. Question six is profound. Every question in this catechism is profound. It's huge. It's got deep, deep waters that we can continue swimming in. If, if, if anybody ever says, oh, I read the Heidelberg Catechism, I know it. That guy doesn't know what he doesn't know. 
We could spend six months on each catechism question, on all the biblical theology that's behind it. That's why we haven't written a new one, because this is just so good. So that's why we remain. There was, a, there was another question over here. Yeah, Kyle. Oh, we'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to that later. That's good stuff. The short answer is infralapsarianism is right. But it had taken me a long time to prove it and explain it, and uh, people would walk out of here scratching their heads. But I got a paper I can give you that I wrote that uh, I think will help you. Um, okay, question seven. Uh, then where does this corrupt human nature come from? So God made us in true righteousness and holiness. He made us for this glory. He made us good. Why are we so messed up, in other words? Where, let's say it together. Then where does this corrupt human nature come from? The fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners, corrupt from conception on. So yeah, this is so good. The fall and disobedience of our first parents. Notice how it, it um, joins us to Adam and Eve. They're our first parents. You know, we're chips off the old block. And so they fall. They disobey. In paradise, in other words, the pre-fall, the pre-fall creation, where it's good, um, but this fall has affected us. And so we call this doctrine original sin. And it's a cardinal doctrine in Christianity. When I say cardinal doctrine, what I mean is um, it's one that you can't deny and still be a Christian. Um, you might not understand it. You might be like, well, I believe in Jesus and trust in him, but I never heard this. You know, tell me what it means. But if you hear it and then say, no, I don't believe in that, then actually you're, you're denying one of the essential tenets of Christianity. And what original sin teaches is um, that in Adam's fall, sinned we all. That's how the English Puritans used to say it. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. So when Adam fell, he was representing us, and we got two things as a result. Guilt and pollution. And we need to be saved from both. Guilt means that we're guilty before God being, because of what happened with our first parents. He was our representative in the garden. And then the pollution is that we are tainted and affected by this sin from the moment of our conception. So David says in Psalm 51, for example, in my mother's womb, you know, uh, I was sinful. I was conceived and born in sin. Um, That's why you don't have to teach a child how to disobey. They already know. You have to teach them how to be obedient, but you don't have to teach them to be naughty. They already they get that by nature. And it's not because God created them evil, it's because of the fall and because of the pollution that clings to us. But, uh, and then we become guilty also as a result of our own sin, but we're already conceived guilty. 
That's why there, you know, there's, there's no such thing as the age of accountability. Uh, that's just a modern uh, theological myth. It's not in Scripture. I mean, if we truly believed in the age of accountability that all babies go to heaven, then we'd be pro-abortion. Kill them all. They all go to heaven. That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense at all. The, we, the Bible says that we're conceived in sin. We're already conceived guilty. And so uh, we, we pray for their salvation, you know, from the moment that they're in the womb. And guess what? God can bring someone to faith in the womb. <laughs> he can do that. You don't come to faith, you know, a person doesn't come to faith only when you think they come to faith. They come to faith when the Holy Spirit says they come to faith. You might see certain evidence that makes you assured, but God knows what you don't. And when Elizabeth walked uh, up to Mary, and who's going to be the mother of the Christ, uh, John the Baptist leaps in her womb. That's not recorded in redemptive history because, oh, it's just so cute. The baby kicked. Everything in redemptive history in the canons of Scripture is recorded for our benefit of understanding uh, God, His holiness, and His promises. And there, it's, it, he, what's happening is the, John the Baptist is doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but the point is, is that we're conceived in this. Now, sometimes people get a little concerned about that and say, how can God hold me responsible for something that Adam did? That's a good question. My favorite response to that is, well, how can God hold Christ responsible for something you did? And they are always quiet after that. You know, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? And he set it up this way, the two Adams. And stop shaking your fist saying, well, I don't like this doctrine. And just put your trust in Jesus Christ, the second Adam. And you'll have the hope of living with him in glorified life and eternal happiness. Okay, any questions on number seven? Questions on number seven. Original sin. Federal headship. Yeah, Kyle. Well, you did answer his question. You just, he didn't like it. At that point, I would just tell him, take it up with God. He's the one that invented it. Because you did answer his question. You know, and he, he, just, he doesn't like the doctrine of original sin and federal headship. But I mean, the thing is, is that there's lots of stuff in the Bible that we don't like. There's lots of stuff in the Bible that makes us uncomfortable. I mean, and, 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 and that's part of the reason why we can trust the Bible. I mean, who, if, you were, if we invented Christianity, who in, on earth would invent the doctrine of election? That, doesn't make, that just totally goes against the grain, you know? And even grace does, really, you know? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You know, what makes sense to us is you get what you deserve, law. But somebody else getting what you deserved, you know, Christ being punished for your sins, doesn't make any sense. And so, and there's a lot of things in Scripture that, that bother us. And, and that's because God is other. He is set apart from us. 
he is totally other, and he, he, he's, he's a little scary, but he's good. And if, if the whole Bible were just so tame, like a kitten, you know, then uh, I, don't, I don't think we could trust it as well. But God comes to us, you know, and he says, this is, this is reality. This is what's happened. And in the beginning, you know, according to what Paul says in Romans 5, through one man's sin came death to all. Through one man's disobedience came corruption. But through this man's righteousness comes life and justification. So, yeah, again, the right response to, to someone like that would be like, look, just put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know, and, and not, don't, don't get too uh, uh, worked up about what you think God should have done in the beginning, <laughs> you know. Somebody once asked uh, Augustine, what was God doing before he made the earth? And Augustine said he was making hell for curious people. <laughs> so, good answer. Uh, okay, five minutes, question eight. Uh, question eight, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Let's try that again. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes. 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 Born again by the Spirit of God. Right. Now, we might look at that and think, you know, man, that seems to be painting too dark of a picture because, um, I mean, we all know people who do good things, right? I mean, um, you know, what if somebody's not born again by the Spirit of God? You know, not re- that is, means regenerate, made new, joined, and united with Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, which you receive through faith, which is given to you by the Spirit, on and on. Uh, they are uh, uh, estranged from God, separated from God, not united to Christ, and yet they may do good things. Um, that's a good question, and the, you know, the Reformers uh, brought that question up. Um, it, it, we, they, they understood you know, good, act, good works by people who are sinful and not believers to, uh, if they outwardly conform to the law of God, we can call that virtuous. And uh, the Reformers had a category for that. They called it civic virtue. So, you know, the guy who helps an old lady across the street. Um, but he's a rank pagan. You know, was that an evil act? Um, well, you know, maybe in his heart he's thinking, you know, I'm a good person because I'm helping this old lady across the street. And, and in that sense, yeah, he's being self-righteous and he'll be held accountable for that. But outwardly, the lady got helped across the street and it was outwardly conformable to the, to the law of God. And we could say, you know, in a civic sense, a good act, a good thing. But if it's not done for the glory of God and if it's not done from true faith, then we can't say that God receives that as a good work. Because it's not offered through Jesus Christ if it's offered apart from faith. So while it might outwardly conform to the image of God, you know, somebody being benevolent. There's a lot of benevolent pagans. 
And, uh, and it's because of what we call common grace, because people know that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. So natural disaster hits, you know, tidal wave, earthquake, whatever, and we see relief pouring in from all kinds of people, people donating money. And we can say that's a good thing. But God doesn't necessarily receive, he doesn't receive that as meritorious, as something that uh, he must then reward. And uh, it, it, it can't be something that ultimately brings us to glory because we don't know the motives of the heart. And in many cases, the motives of the heart of that person is that, well, I want good karma to come back to me. You know, I want to be a good person. I'm a good person. I'm not that bad. I do good things. You know, I was talking to a guy who's in organized crime and uh, he'd done a lot of wicked things, but he kept telling me, but I'm not a bad person. I give a lot of money to the poor. I, I, uh, I help people. Uh, I only hurt bad people. And he's uh, so trying to justify himself. The motives, and those kinds of twisted motives are in all our hearts. We feel good about ourselves when we do something good. But we have to remember that God doesn't receive that as good apart from the mediation of the only one who is good, who is Jesus Christ. So, uh, any, any other closing thoughts or questions on Lord's Day 3 before we, before we end? Okay. Then we'll pick up Lord's Day 4 next week. And someone call me out if I, if I go jump ahead. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time of study and reflection on your word. Thank you, Father, for the good news of your grace given to us in Jesus Christ, the, the second Adam who came to do for us that which we could not do for ourselves and has given us the hope of glory, a glory that is not worth comparing to all the suffering that we experience in this life. Thank you, Father, for that hope. Thank you for what Jesus has done. Thank you that he crushed the serpent's head and cast him out and so that we, Lord, will dwell on a new earth that is free from Satan and sin and suffering. And we look forward to that, Lord. Keep us faithful in this life, Lord, as we respond to your grace with a life of good works done and offered through the mediation of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.